I'll tell you, whenever I come to the meeting house on a cold day, think of those congregational forebears coming to church with no heating. Think of how cold it was then. Aren't we lucky? <laughs> All right, I take from my text this morning the 15th verse of the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. Please pray with me. Holy God, as we gather here to discern your word in Scripture, may your Holy Spirit be with us so that we can hear a word for our lives today. Amen. We are now in the season of, of Epiphany, the season of light, the season when Jesus enters the scene. It's the time when we hear again that familiar narrative of the beginning of Jesus' ministry. We try to put ourselves into the shoes or sandals of the first disciples. What was it like for them to be there? What did they hear? How can we hear the same thing for us? How can we meet Jesus again as though for the first time? This year is the second year in the three-year lectionary cycle, so we turn our attention to the Gospel of Mark. Over these several weeks, we will get the opportunity, the treat, of exploring Mark's story of Jesus. This is the earliest Gospel, the one least encumbered by later theological developments. These weeks, we will get as close to the historical Jesus as we can. The veil of history is as thin in any, as in any other place of the Bible here in the Gospel of Mark. We are those fishermen, tending our nets by the Sea of Galilee. We look up and see a man walking towards us. We squint our eyes and see someone different, someone who has this unique aura about him. What will we say to you? Last week we heard the bombshell opening of Mark. Mark was writing at a time of great tension in Palestine. Some scholars place Mark's gospel in the, mid, uh, in the mid-60s A.D., just before the outbreak of war with Rome. Others place it a few years later in the midst of that great war, or just as it came to its tragic close. Mark's gospel, the, the, Mark's gospel is set for his original hearers in that era of extreme tension, just as much as it is the story about Jesus 30 years before. It is a story to people at that time listening His opening is a direct challenge to the ruling elites. The gospel begins not in the center of power, but in the wilderness, with a call from John the Baptist, the new Elijah. And it's pregnant with apocalyptic tension. In the midst of that environment, the first radical word we hear from Jesus is metanoia, repentance. If you want to be a part of the new age, if you want to find a way out of the confusion and tension of the world, the first step is a radical reorientation to God a turning around of your life. In so doing, you are stepping into the world, the perspective of Jesus and his first followers. Gone are the expectations of the secular world, the values and viewpoints we so often hear. In their place, we look to God. What would God have us do? How is God directing us? That is the first step, the first radical step in the Gospel of Mark. Metanoia, radical life change. Now that we've emerged from the waters of new life, we look around to see where we should go next. What does it mean to commit commit ourselves to God in this way? What is the next step? 
That's the question that faces us this morning. The text today from Mark has the answer for you. In the 2016 presidential election, there were not only two candidates for office, but also two starkly different views on the world. If you didn't know better, you might have thought that Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton were talking about two different countries. Hillary Clinton wanted to carry on the legacy of Barack Obama. The success of that message depended on voters seeing the state of the nation as fundamentally sound. Yes, of course, there are always things that can change, but Hillary Clinton's campaign was about making well-informed well policy tweaks to improve our country. The Affordable Care Act is working in some ways. Let's do something to make, let's do small things to make it that much better. Let's pass even better legislation and well-considered policies. Hillary's campaign website, if you took the time to look at it, had literally pages and pages of how we could make the country a little better in each major policy area. Donald Trump's view on the state of the nation could not have been more different. He painted a picture of the nation in distress. I watched the whole Republican National Convention, and it seemed like I was living in some American dystopia. Immigrants destroying the country, constant threats from Muslim extremists, cities that were dens of crime, chance of lock her up, lock her up, a political system that was overrun by corruption and that could only be saved by someone who had used his money to corrupt politicians. I honestly had never seen such a pessimistic view of the country, and it was in stark contrast to Clinton's viewpoint. And that bleak outlook on the country is not limited to the RNC or to Trump. It goes well beyond politics. The other day I flew back into town very late after attending a funeral in rural Kansas for the mother of a very close friend. When I took the shuttle bus to the parking lot, I was the only person on the shuttle. The driver and I started talking. He's an African-American man in his late 60s. Given his demographic, I would, I, I would guess he didn't vote for Donald Trump, but he did share his pessimistic view of the nation. Parents don't discipline their kids these days, he complained. Kids don't know how to behave. He went on to lament low church attendance by young people, along with other things that showed a lack of morals in the country. A pessimistic view of things is not dependent on one political party or another. It all depends on what you're experiencing in life. It depends on the, what things you see and what you highlight to yourself. Think about the state of the nation. Fundamentally sound, or are we living in dark times, the beginning of the end of American greatness? Turning to the gospel lesson, we find Jesus' starting, startlingly, startlingly optimistic view of the future. Jesus' view is not like Trump's or Clinton's, or the shuttle bus driver at Bush Intercontinental Airport. Listen to the core proclamation of his ministry in Mark. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. Do you hear that? At a, time when, at a time in Israel when things could not have been more bleak, here is Jesus in Galilee preaching that the kingdom of God has come near, that things were looking up, that good was on the horizon, and that it had already started. This is the essence of Jesus' proclamation. The Greek word for proclamation is kerygma. It's a word that is announced for all to hear. The good news of Jesus is that the kingdom of God is coming. In spite of all the negativity, the injustice, the oppression by the Romans... The abuse of power by the Jerusalem elite, Jesus has a word of hope. God is ushering in an era of justice. God is letting the oppressed go free. God is bringing healing to people. It is because the kingdom of God has drawn near that we should repent. We should reorient our lives. We should engage in metanoia. The kingdom is coming. Turn to God and believe. That is the kerygma 
the proclamation of Jesus. Okay, yeah, Jesus, your proclamation is all well and good. How are we really supposed to believe it? I mean, honestly. You can talk about the coming kingdom of God. You can proclaim it all you want around the countryside in Galilee. But that doesn't change things, Jesus. You have to show me something for me to believe. It's like that motto of the state of Missouri. Show me, Steve. You have to give me something more than just words. I need something tangible to make me think that this coming kingdom of God is actually possible. So what does Jesus do? How does he respond after proclaiming the coming kingdom of God? He shows that it's coming by healing, by welcoming outcasts to his table, by casting out demons, by challenging the excessive legalism of the Pharisees of his time. As more people see that the kingdom of God is coming, more and more people repent and believe. It's a movement that builds and builds and builds, even among the supposedly dark times that Jesus lived in. I can't get this out of my head when I think about things today. We are confronted with a difficult situation in our country. Trying to learn how to be good disciples. We turn our attention to the Gospel of Mark, hoping, praying for some insight, and we're met with the charisma of Jesus. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has drawn near. Repent and believe in the good news. How do we believe it? How do we believe the good news even after we have committed to metanoia, to repentance? Is it really possible today? I need something tangible, real signs, that it can happen. When I was in college, I took a class that focused exclusively on Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America. The class was taught by Harvey Mansfield, the most outspoken conservative in the Harvard Government Department. There were just five of us in the class me, and then the editorial board of the Salience, the conservative newspaper on campus. All my peeps. (laughs) Professor Mansfield had recently come out with his own edition of Democracy in America. This classic work, if you're not familiar with it, was written by a Frenchman in the 1830s based on his extensive travel in the U.S. It's noted for its in-depth analysis of the U.S. political system and for de Tocqueville's prescience as to the future success of America. In particular, de Tocqueville contrasts what he sees in America with the, more, with the more bureaucratized and specialized system in France. This undergraduate class and this work of political philosophy forever shaped my politics, just in case you're curious. De Tocqueville looked in particular at the governance structure he found in New England. I'm not making this up. This is really true. <laughs> what shocked him was that towns of 500 people of 1,000 were run not by experienced aristocrats groomed to rule from birth, but by average people, by boards of selectmen, sometimes seven, sometimes nine, with new people elected on a yearly basis. This this stunned de Tocqueville. This meant that large numbers of the population were actually engaged in the governing process of these towns. Yes, when average people are elected to office, they lack political experience. They make mistakes. Governance in these towns is not always pretty. But the governance in these towns trained people in the skills of governing. These towns were the, were the labs and the classrooms of democracy. 
People had opinions about their country and about their towns, not opinions formed by reading some blog post, but, but the opinions of someone who had to wrestle with the task of governing. They were involved and informed. In Europe, it was governance by the elite, the aristocracy. In New England, it was governance by the average people. I would go one step further and say that in New England, the governance structure was a reflection of the congregational churches there. Just as a town meeting was the final authority in these towns, the congregational meeting was the final authority in the churches. When people work on boards and committees, they learn how to work together for the common good and how to listen to one another and to make decisions even when people disagree. Ever since I took that class on democracy in America, I have been a committed Democrat with a lowercase d. I am an unreserved believer in governance by the people. Unlike some friends of mine, some other friends of mine, who, who wish we were ruled by the best, the most educated, and the most experienced, I actually celebrate populist movements in the U.S., even though it carries with it certain risks. When we look around the U.S. today, we see the entrenched power of special interests. Large corporations and those with money call all the shots. But you know, it was the same way a hundred years ago, except even worse. The Gilded Age was the ultimate example of rule by the rich and powerful for the rich and powerful. But there was a growing movement in the late 19th century to give power back to the people. This coalesced in the progressive movement of the early 20th century. The progressive movement overcame these powerful interests and protected citizens from the abuses of those in power. The Food and Drug Act, the breaking up of trusts, in particular the power of the railroads, the direct election of senators, the rise of primaries, giving the vote to women, the limits on, limits on the work week, protections for workers injured on the job, the regulation of housing in urban areas, these were all a direct result of the progressive movement. What was the backbone of the progressive movement? Churches, church people. It was church people organized politically who advocated for those who needed an advocate. It was church people who saw themselves as bringing about the kingdom of God who changed our nation and restored power to the people. When I look around the U.S. today, I see similar democratic movements springing up everywhere. It began with the haphazard Occupy movement. The Occupy movement failed because it failed to understand the power of, the power of politics and organizing. It was a spontaneous manifestation of frustration. But it was the Tea Party movement of 2010 that began to make a difference. Yes, that's right. I am up here lauding the Tea Party movement. <laughs> I don't celebrate the Tea Party movement for its political views, most of which I disagree with. I celebrate it for its democratic power and organization. Sadly, the Tea Party movement was, rather quickly, co-opted by those in power to serve their ends. The election of Donald Trump could be seen as a reaction to this co-opting of the Tea Party. People were angry with the establishment, and so they, they sought the most anti-establishment figure they could find, and they found him in Donald Trump. As much as I disagree with Donald Trump on so many levels, I did have hope that he might actually drain the swamp, as he so often promised. His agenda for his first hundred days, with its limits on lobbying, had several laudable aspects to it. Unfortunately, the powers that be co-opted the populist parts of Trump's agenda, and the only major reform we have seen is a change to the tax code, particularly for corporations. But it is there. The populist fervor is there. The organizing force is there. There's a reason why Bernie Sanders such, struck such a chord with voters, and young voters in particular. Personally, I was surprised how popular Bernie was because his agenda struck me as so radical. But his very popularity shows that the movement, the movement is actually there. 
Look at the increased interest in politics around the nation. We have new people, good people, stepping up to run for office at all levels. We have new volunteers, people who have never before gotten involved in politics, who are getting involved and making contributions. Bernie Sanders raised an enormous amount of money through small contributions, not just the rich and powerful. It is possible. It's possible for the people to have a voice and to speak. Jesus was preaching about the coming kingdom of God. He demonstrated that it was coming through his healings, his teachings, his radical welcome, his challenge to a corrupt system. That movement was a spiritual movement inspired by the Holy Spirit. When I look around, I see a lot of negative things in our country. I am buoyed by the prospect that things can get better because there are glimpses of the kingdom of God coming through. Average people of all political stripes, all political stripes, are sick and tired of the rich and powerful calling the shots. Average people of all political stripes want campaign finance reform. People of all political stripes want sensible gun laws. People of all political stripes want an end to gerrymandering and criminal justice reform so that someone is not put behind bars for the possession of a small amount of marijuana. People all across the country decry private prisons. People of all political stripes want sensible immigration policy and want an extension of the DREAM Act. People want to reform our health care system and see access to health care as a basic human right. All of these issues, when they're pulled on in the United States, all of them have overwhelming majorities of people in the country who support them. When you get beyond the rhetoric, when you can see through the partisan spin of people like Sean Hannity, Ameri the American people are actually appalled that the President of the United States could call a whole continent a dunghole. And I'm sorry I can't even use the President's words in church. When we look, we can see glimpses of a new reality that has the chance to break through. Just here in Houston, when Hurricane Harvey struck, we saw Houstonians, regardless of politics, helping one another. We saw people raising funds for one another, and at the center of it was the churches. Churches that might disagree on gay marriage or other issues all stepped up to organize and help people with volunteer labor and donations, including people here at First Congregational. This is incredible. Don't tell me there's not a potential for the kingdom of God to break through, even here, even in these times. Because it is. It's there. It's here. It's around us. There is this groundswell for it. But of course, there's a danger in populist movements. Not only can they be co-opted by the powerful, but they can be co-opted by demonic forces within us. Populism can feed off racism and xenophobia. It can feed off our divisions. That's why it's so crucial for metanoia, for repentance, to happen. We in churches have to, have to fight to make sure that this potential inbreaking of the kingdom of God is actually propelled and filled with the spirit of God and not the spirit of the devil. You, you, all of here, have a calling. Jesus is calling on you to repent. Jesus wants you to see how easily you too can fall into racism and other sins. Jesus wants you to look to the Holy Spirit and to God and wants you to reorient your life to God and then to believe the good news that the kingdom is coming. Ours is an activist faith. It's not a faith that calls on us to do no action. Quite the contrary. We are called on to repent and believe in the kingdom of God and then to follow Jesus' lead and do something to bring it about. You have the power. Not in your own ability, but in the larger power of the Holy Spirit because that same spirit that is motivating you is motivating people of faith and even people who don't know they are being motivated by faith to stand up and do something for God. That's what Jesus is all this is what Jesus is talking about. It was a message for people 2,000 years ago, and yes, it is a message for us here today. You better believe it.
As I said earlier, this past weekend, or this past week, I traveled to rural Kansas for the funeral of the mother of my good friend, Chad LaBurtis. Coolidge, Kansas is about as rural as it gets. The community is not wealthy by any standard, and it is, a, it, it is about as different from Interloop, Houston, or Boston as any place in the United States can be. Kansas is a rock-solid red state, and I'd be willing to bet money on the fact that nearly every person I met there voted differently than I did in 2016. But as I wandered those streets, as I stood in that funeral and heard of the life of Dorothy Libertas, a woman of deep faith, who cared and worked her whole life for her community, not one part of me doubted that these people were fellow workers, or at least could be fellow workers, in bringing about the kingdom of God. I believe that that's true. I believe in the, in the charisma of Jesus. This is good news. God is present. God is working through our churches and our communities. We just need to repent to make a commitment to a life change, to reorient our lives to God, and then to do battle against the devil and his minions to be a part of the inbreaking kingdom of God. This is what makes me so enthusiastic about this church. First Congregational Church is dedicated to this vision of Jesus's. Our new strategic plan that we will talk about at the annual meeting on January 28th, by the way, I hope that's in your calendar, we have as our vision the bringing about of the kingdom of God here in Houston. Small little task. But it's something that we, are, that we are committed to. We are a congregation that believes in the power of people. We believe in the rule of people, in giving people the power of governing. That's why we invite so many of you to sit on boards and committees. We believe in discussing important issues openly and being willing to disagree in love. We are a congregation that's willing to get involved in the public square. We care about issues of racism and poverty and immigration and homophobia. We have made our voices heard on these issues in the past, and we will do so again and again and again until we live into that vision. This place, this church, this congregation is essential to this larger movement, this Jesus movement. And I want you to see that and to believe it. Go forth today, I want the words of Jesus' kerygma to be ringing in your ears. Think about it tonight and tomorrow and throughout the week. Write it, out, write it out and put it up on your refrigerator at home or wherever else you put notices for you to see. Maybe on your screensaver as it rotates across. We are a pilgrim people and we are on an epic journey of faith. Others may fall into endless pessimism, but we share the optimism of Jesus and his vision. Remember these words. Remember the kerygma. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has drawn near. Repent and believe in the good news. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Thank the Lord for that.